Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. A man and his wife were having an argument about who should brew the coffee every morning. The wife said, you should do it because you get up first. That way we'll get our coffee sooner. (laughs) Kind of a Dutch thing, early in the morning, you know. The husband said, you're in charge of the cooking around here, so you should do it because it's your job. The wife said, you should surely do it because the Bible says so. And the husband said, I can't believe it, show me. So she opened up her Bible to Hebrews. Well, let's all open to Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As we've been working through Hebrews, we've come to the conclusion in verse 18 of chapter 10 of this great doctrinal treatise on the person of Christ and all that he's done for us. And starting in verse 19 of chapter 10, we, it begins to be applied to our lives in a very uh, in-depth manner. There are three commands, perhaps given in the form of invitations here. We looked at the first one last week in verse 22. Let us draw near. God says that he has given us complete access to himself. He welcomes us into his presence. He enables us to come into his presence by the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And then he says, use what I've given you. Come in to my presence. Come in and talk to me and fellowship with me. Now in verse 23 that we want to consider today, he says not only should we draw near to God, He says we should hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. What is the confession of our hope? A little bit of perhaps to us obscure language. We don't normally speak that way in in this church when we talk about salvation. Confession of our hope. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We want to understand what our hope is and what the confession of our hope. And I believe that the first part of understanding the confession of our hope is this. God has made promises to us. God has made promises to us. Ephesians 1.18. This is part of a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians... 
verse 18, he says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. There's that word hope again. The hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, which he raised him when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. When God talks about hope in the scriptures, he's not talking about a forward look with the word maybe in it. He's not talking about looking into the future and thinking, well, boy, it sure would be nice. It could be, it might be, it may be. No, when he's talking about hope, he's talking about future events on which we have rested our confidence. Here, he says, I'm praying that you, your eyes, your spiritual eyes will be opened so that you can know the hope and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of the glory of his inherit, of the inheritance in the saints. What is it that Christ is doing right now for us? What? He's praying for us. What else is he doing in heaven? Preparing a place. You have an apartment in heaven. I have a house on Sweet Hill. But I have an apartment in heaven. I use the word apartment. We, you remember that song, This World Is Not My Home, and so on? Or I've got a mansion over the hilltop. There's the song I'm thinking of. Got a mansion over the hilltop. I don't know if you got a whole mansion. You know, probably most of you are just going to get an apartment. No. The truth is, that scripture where Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, in my Father's house are many, literally it says compartments or designated places. You have a designated residence in heaven. And Jesus is up there right now preparing it for you. Now, if he's taken 2,000 years to get that ready, that ought to be something, huh? That is for you in heaven. That is something that you have rested your hope on. You say, I have a place in heaven reserved for me. He says, I am praying that you will understand the inheritance of of the saints in glory, the inheritance. You're going to inherit that. There's something else you're going to have when you get to heaven. God says, whatever you do for him today is put in store in heaven. We call it putting up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Lay up treasures in heaven. My bank account's not very fat here on earth. I hope it's fatter in heaven. Eternity will tell. God says, I'm holding up these things for you, and when you get here, they're going to be here, and you're going to be rewarded. God says he's got some crowns, some crowns for us in heaven. He's going to reward us for our work. That is part of what is ahead for us. God has promised us those things. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he promises us something else. He says, when you die and your body is in the ground, he said, that's not the end. 
He said, someday your body's going to be resurrected and perfected. Many other scriptures tell us about that. You have a future in heaven with a perfected body, a glorified body. God has made promises to us, promises about the future in heaven. And in Ephesians 2, we find out how we accept those promises. Ephesians 2.12. But this man, Jesus, after he had... Excuse me, I'm, I'm in Hebrews. My goodness, I flipped my page back too soon. Ephesians 2.12. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants and promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has made promises to us and we are able to accept those promises through the blood of Christ, through our faith, in Christ. Romans 10.10 says, With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. When Jesus tells you, I am preparing some things for you, and I will receive you into heaven, he makes a promise. When we turn around and say, I believe in what you have done, we receive or accept those promises. And by that, we Put our hope in heaven. That is what is ahead for me. This Wednesday will mark 26 years of marriage for Sue and I. And, uh, I, you know, the years just speed on by. Our, our son and his wife are here with us. I can't quite get the words out of my mouth. You know, my son and his wife are here. And uh, time speeds on. Marriage is a wonderful thing. I've performed dozens and dozens of, of, of weddings. And when we come to that part where I say, here's the promise you're going to make, then the groom makes some promises. The bride makes some promises. And then after that, we essentially ask them to accept the promise. We say, will you, we have a bunch of fanciful words, and they say, I do. See, it's one thing for me to make the promise. It's another thing for her to receive the promise. Say, yes, you're making a promise, I agree. I'm making a promise, you agree. You know, in all the weddings I've ever done, I've never had somebody come up and say, could we tone down the commitment thing just a little bit? We have some newlyweds here this week. Fred and Grace, raise your hands. All the way from California. You think, they don't look like newlyweds. Oh, yes, they are. Can you imagine a couple, can you imagine the groom saying, a, a preacher, could we just take some of those words back out? Because I'm not sure if I want to really fully commit. Although we know that that seems to be what a lot of people think, isn't it? Well, the, the question before you today, when he says, hold fast the confession of your hope, the question is, have you fully committed to God, 
Or are you sort of taking a tentative posture? See, God has made promises. And you are on the other side in the position of receiving those promises, but it takes your full commitment. You can't be half saved. You can't be saved on Sunday and lost on Monday. It's an all or nothing kind of deal. God says, hold fast. The question is, are you fully giving yourself to God? Are you fully committing? When you say, I believe in Christ as my Savior, are you saying, well, yeah, I believe that, but you know, this other church, they got an idea too. No, God says fully commit. How does God want us to handle this confession of hope? Back in Hebrews 10, he says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, I've been in the ministry just a little shorter time than I've been married, and I know that that's a tough verse. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Rock solid, straight on commitment to the Lord. When I think of, of without wavering, this word literally means no leaning. When I think of that, the image that comes to my mind is the Olympics and the uh, opening ceremonies. And uh, they, you know, they have the, the team is all together, however large or small it might be. And on a number of the teams, particularly like if you see the Russian team or somebody like that, who do they have carrying the flag for their team? You know, their Russian flag. They got some great big animal wrestler. And how does he carry it? He holds it just like this. Kind of like, I can do it, you know? And, and, and he, you know, his muscles are probably quivering by the time the thing's over. But he's not flinching. That flag is not going to bend. Boom. And when, when God says to me, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, somehow we have got to get a hold of God in such a way that we don't go this way or that way. We don't bend over. We don't give in. What causes us to waver in our commitment to the Lord? Well, there are three things that I want to think about with you today. The first is this, the pull of sinful pleasure. Turn with me to 1 John 2. There are three things that will make us waver, that will make us let the flag down for God. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.16 4 All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I believe those three phrases in verse 16 summarize the temptations that come to us as Christians. We need to understand something about temptation. If if you've never thought this through, Christian, Adam and Eve had no sin nature when they were tempted by sin. We have somehow maybe gained the idea that my sin nature makes me sin. 
it's the temptation comes to my sinful nature. Now what happens, Christian, is the temptation comes to your human nature. Satan came along and he said, Eve, look at that apple, or whatever it was, what fruit, look at that. And she looked at it and she saw that it was beautiful. Are there some things you think are beautiful? I think a Mercedes-Benz car is beautiful. I'm sorry. I'm just not that spiritual, you know. I love my rev wagon, my 93 Taurus. I, I'm not kidding you. I love that car. I picked it out on purpose. That, that wasn't an accident that I ended up with that car, and I love it. But I would love a Mercedes-Benz if anybody's got their checkbook here. I just love the way they look. There are things that appeal to us. And to some of you, you couldn't give a hoot and a holler about how a Mercedes-Benz or any other car looks, but there are some other things that look good to you. God says that there are things that are attractive to our eyes. The word lust means a strong desire. There are things that we see in the world and we say, boy, that looks good and I want that. There are things in the world that are appealing to our physical body, the lust of the flesh. Now that is not just talking about sexual temptations, folks. It's talking about sensory temptations. That is, things we can taste, touch, things that affect our body. The lust of the flesh. Our bodies crave things. And then there is another one, the pride of life. I believe that the pride of life is what drives the organizations and societies of this world. You say, oh, no, no, I know these people are out there doing good. You do not know what's going on in the hearts of people in the world. And sometimes in the church. The pride of life is that drive to, to get people to pat us on the back. All of these things, in all of these things, there are pleasures for us. Now, you see, there's nothing sinful about somebody patting you on the back. There's nothing sinful about owning a nice car if, if the Lord wills and you can afford it. There's nothing sinful about a lot of things, but when we allow ourselves to be driven to have these things to fulfill our life, even when it means compromising our Christianity, we are being pulled by sinful pleasure. We need to be honest enough to look at our life and admit that these strong desires cause us to loosen our grip on the hand of Jesus just a little bit. You know how little kids are? You're going to, you're going to a Disneyland, you know, and you got the death grip on the kid's hand, right? Because you just know somebody's going to steal them. And, and does your kid go merrily along? Okay, Mom, Dad, wherever you want to go. Or do they go, ah, ah, ah. That's you with sin and God. God, just let me go. You know, you're, you're hanging on to God like this. And God's got the death grip on you because what we find in the Scripture is he will not let you go. He will chasten you until you take the hold again. 
But when we are wavering in our confession, sometimes it's because we just want something that we shouldn't have. The pull of sinful pleasure. Secondly, the second thing that will, keep, will, will cause us to try to loosen our grip on the Lord is the pain of life's hard events. I just bought a book by Johnny Erickson Tada. Most of you have probably heard of her. She was a, a young Christian gal who, who uh, dove into a pool as a teenager, dove into a lake, I forget where, and, and was paralyzed from the neck down. Severely quadriplegic. And uh, I, I read an excerpt of a, of a, I don't know if you call it a lecture or a message she gave at a seminary. And after reading that, I said, I've got to have this gal's book. I mean, I've, she's always been a godly woman from what I've seen, but I just thought she has really, really gotten a grasp on pain and suffering, and, and I need to learn from that. The title of her book is The God I Love. Now think about it, folks. There's a beautiful, young, teenage gal who's, and boom, she's paralyzed from the neck down. And years later, she writes a book, The God I Love. Now, what kind of life do you suppose she's been leading between then and now? I think she's been loving God all those years. And I think we all know enough about life to realize that not everybody responds to hardship in that godly of a way. It's real easy to become bitter and get a face that looks like this, and oh man, my life has been tough. And you know what? Life is tough. I knew a guy years ago, spent some time with him, a Christian man, and it seemed like every time I spent time with him, he told me about the same hurts from his past. He rehearsed them, rehearsed them, rehearsed them. He was like Naomi in the Old Testament. You remember Naomi and Ruth? Ruth is the name of the Bible book where we read about Naomi. Naomi had some real hardship. Her husband died and her two sons died. And she's left as a widow, and that was, that was a really tough go back then. It's a tough go today, but it was even tougher back then, I think. And she came back to her home area. It was like coming back to Ferndale after, you know, living in California, not that far away, but coming back. And her friend said, oh, here's Naomi. And what was the first words out of her mouth? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I mean, she cut right to the chase. She didn't pussyfoot around and have pious platitudes about how hard life has been. She pointed the finger straight into heaven and said, God's given me a hard life. If you allow the difficulties of your life, they will make you waver in your commitment to Christ. You could spend years and years, like my friend, being bitter, losing the joy of the Lord. God says, don't do it. He says, hold fast. There's a third thing that can cause us to waver in our commitment to the Lord, and that's this. The placing of faith in people. Placing of faith in people. I had a friend in Seattle who was a member of the community chapel in Burien. And if you really pay attention to current church history, you remember that the community chapel was a church based 
in a number of what, what I would consider to be uh, wrong beliefs, and they got worse. The beliefs got worse and worse and more and more corrupt and unbiblical until the whole thing blew up in a mess of adultery and divorce and even suicide. I mean, the, the, you know, just an interesting trivia note is the facility that used to house that church now houses the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Center, the police academy for Washington State, which is probably the best use that building's ever had. My friend was very involved in this church, and he was going to their Bible college. He was going to go out and start a church, you know, a, a satellite church, if you will, a, a church plant out from the community chapel. And this whole thing blew up in this terrible mess. The truth became known. And I knew him several years after this happened, and I knew him for 10 years or more, and he still wasn't living for the Lord after all those years. He was just blown right off of his saddle by the, by, the, by the ugliness of everything that went on there. You know what, folks? I have a news flash for you. There is no such thing as a perfect example walking on this earth. And if you get your eyes fixed on people, there will be at least some small difficulty with that. And at worst, there could be a large difficulty. Put your faith in God and in His Word and love His people, but trust God. If you don't, you will come to a time of wavering commitment when you talk about your faith being shaken. Well, what can help us to be consistent in our commitment to God? Look at Hebrews 10.23 again. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. The reason we should hold fast, the reason we should not waver, is because God is faithful. And it goes like this. When sin presents itself for your consideration, you need to realize the faithfulness of God in designing the best way of life that you possibly could have. When sin presents itself, you, you are essentially at a Y in the road. Here's God's way. Here's the sinful way. God's way, the sinful way. God's way, the sinful way. It may be a small thing. It may be a big thing. It may be a monumental decision in your life. It may be some small decision. What way am I going to go? And at that moment, the pull of sin, oh, this looks so good. And God says, I've designed your life to work optimally around the principles of godliness. In Romans 4.24, we read that Abraham knew God was able to perform what he had promised. Abraham looked at this, you know, God called him to do something tough and extraordinary, and he said, God can do this. If God says this will work, this will work. No matter what I can see, no matter what I can feel, this will work. When sin presents itself, we need to realize the faithfulness of God in designing the best way of life. And so we need to live righteously. Instead of wavering towards sin, we cling to God and say, yes, 
I'm going to do the right thing. Number two, when the pain of life's hard events is weighing on you, remember that God is faithful in controlling your world in such a way as to make your challenge bearable. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. There has no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able to bear, but will with the temptation provide the means of escape. When you get into difficulty, there's a strong temptation to think this is the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody. God says, no, first of all, it's common to man. It's not common to you. It's the first time for you. But God also says, you can handle it with me. A phrase that should never be in the Christian's vocabulary is, I just can't take it anymore. You know why we shouldn't say that? Because what we should be saying is, boy, this is tough, but I can take it with God. Is God with you or isn't he? Is God controlling your world or isn't he? Did he take a nap when that thing happened to you? No. There are hard things in life. But 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, He who called you is faithful who will also do it? God is the doer. We're just along for the ride. God is faithful. He will guard you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, When the pain of life's hard events is weighing you down, remember God is faithful in controlling your world in such a way as to make your challenge bearable. Number three, when people let you down, remember that your high priest is always in heaven praying for you and keeping you saved and safe. Hebrews 3.3, 3, in fact, one of the themes of this book is that Jesus is a faithful high priest able to keep us saved. 2 Timothy 2.13 goes even farther. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. When people let you down, it's a reminder, quit looking at people. Look at God. He's not going to let you down. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. When I was a teenager, I had an occasion to visit with our neighbors and play a little backyard game of waffle ball. I, I was, I don't know, ninth, tenth grade, somewhere in there, and I was had my arms around their little daughter who was just a little kid, and we were batting the ball like this with a plastic bat and a ball. And they had a little bulldog about that big. The head of the thing was about two-thirds of it, you know, and ugly, teeth like a piranha. You know them little bulldogs. Oh. And he saw my arms around his girl, and he said, that ain't right. And he came up and got a hold of the back of my arm, and I stood up, and he was hanging on the back of my arm. And I shook for all I was worth and jumped, ran and jumped across the fence and went and licked my wounds. What kind of bite have you put on the Lord? I want to encourage you to put a bite on like a bulldog. Take a hold of God and don't let go no matter what happens. 
it is possible to hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Heavenly Father, make it so in our lives. Oh, Father, it's so easy to be pulled by difficulty, by sin, by people who let us down. Father, help us to get a hold of you and not relax our grip for anything. Father, as we do that, make yourself real to us. Show us your faithfulness. Encourage our hearts as we see our growth and your work in our lives. I pray in Christ's name. invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's word will give you hope for life.